0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Andrew Leach, professor of law and economics at the University of Alberta. As Canada and the world look to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, how might an energy transition affect Alberta, where most of Canada's oil and gas is produced? I'll ask Andrew to help us understand how federal policies are creating tensions with provincial leaders in Alberta, and how Indigenous communities are increasingly involved in shaping oil and gas development decisions. We'll also talk about the environmental liabilities associated with oil sands in particular, along with the similarities and differences between Canada and the U.S. on energy transition issues. One quick production note, there are a few audio issues in today's episode, and we apologize for that. But the issues are pretty minor, and the quality of Andrew's insights more than make up for any shortfall in audio fidelity. So stay with us. Andrew Leach from the University of Alberta, welcome to Resources Radio. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us, and I'm really looking forward to today's conversation where we're going to talk all about Canadian oil and gas, particularly Albertan oil and gas. But before we get into our subject du jour, we always ask our guests how they got interested in energy or environmental
1: issues, either at a young age or later in life. So what kind of inspired you to end up working on these topics? Sure. For me, it's it goes back to my family's home in New Brunswick, which is a lumber town in northeastern on the east coast of, of Canada and all of my family worked in in the lumber industry and we our family lived just i guess upriver from a pulp mill and i remember really early on learning you know you could swim in the river at my grandmother's house but you couldn't if you were further down river below the pulp mill and asking those questions and figuring out all of the the give and take between environmental policy and economics really as without knowing what i was learning about at that point and then You know, that was always a driver for me that pushed me to environmental science. And then at Guelph was my undergrad degree, John Livernois, who many or many of your listeners may know, uh, an economics professor at the University of Guelph, taught a class that brought that science aspect, economics, policy and the environment all together. And, And that's really what I've been doing since his class. That's fascinating, Andrew. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I've actually been learning a little bit about um, lumber mills myself recently for uh, a research project and learning about some of the pollution issues associated with them. So that's really interesting to hear. So as I said a moment ago, we're going to focus on the energy industry in Alberta today, and particularly the oil and gas industry. But before we get into details around policy and economics and trends in the sector, can you give us a little bit of an overview about how the oil and gas industry contributes to Canadian oil and gas production writ large and the entire Canadian economy?
1: Sure. So Alberta is, I guess, the center of the Canadian oil and gas economy, We produce the lion's share of of Canadian oil production, about three and three-quarter million barrels per day uh, out of Alberta with little bits from Saskatchewan just to to our east and then some eastern offshore, a little bit in British Columbia. Gas production is more important in British Columbia, uh, but Alberta still produces, what do we have, about 11 billion cubic feet per day. So if you put that in U.S. terms, the province of Alberta would be about 10 percent of U.S. natural gas production, about 35 percent of U.S. oil production. And so it's it, it really is the lion's share of Canada's fossil fuel economy anyhow. And then with that are the ongoing employment from the oil and gas sector. Calgary, uh, our largest city and our financial hub, has a an incredibly large financial sector devoted mostly to oil and gas and and energy writ large, and then all of the engineering, construction, design, banking, jobs that go along with uh, with the major industry.
0: Right, right. Yeah, the direct employment and then the sort of indirect
1: and induced employment, which (laughs) we've all thought about. I've got to avoid those terms uh, that every economist (laughs) hates, I think. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. And then, you know, the fiscal side of it, too, which is certainly in our province, it it really does drive everything from a government uh, government sense. We have about, you know, 35 percent of our government's revenue is direct resource revenue and then. A large share of the income taxes, et cetera, property taxes at the municipal level are driven by resource industry. So it has this, this outsized fiscal role as well as the employment and energy role. Right, for sure. And, yeah, similar dynamic in some states here in the U.S. So
0: um... – The federal government in Canada, as many of our listeners probably know, has legislation that aims to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2050. So with that in mind, and we're going to talk about that more in a moment, but can you give us again a little bit of background on how the energy industry in Alberta contributes to emissions
1: at the national level and whether the trends are sort of up or down over time? Sure. So Canada has a couple of targets that they're pushing towards, a a Glasgow target of 40 to 45% below 2005, and then the net zero target that you, you mentioned. Right now, we have legislation that doesn't put us on the path to either of those. And so we are looking still for significant additional measures, and a lot of them aimed at the oil and gas sector, because right now the oil and gas sector nationally is about a third of our greenhouse gas emissions, give or take, 179 megatons out of 650, so a little less than a third. Um, And other sectors, electricity, for instance, are on a path to pretty rapid decline, whereas the oil and gas sector hasn't been growing as fast in recent years as it had through till, say, 2015-16, but it's still a Still a significant source of emissions and not really expected to drop even under the stringent policies that we already have in place nationally—carbon taxes, clean fuels regulations, etc. It's still looking like roughly stable through 2035, unless there are other new measures on top of those already implemented. So, the oil and gas industry presents a pretty big challenge for for the federal government and then by extension, uh, you know, for the Alberta government.
0: Yeah, and I I have an idea for for why this is, but listeners might be wondering, like, what are the actual technical processes that lead to such high emissions from the oil and gas industry specifically? And um, I imagine this has to do with sort of oil sands mining and you know upgrading of uh, of the fuels. But can you give us a little bit of a flavor for those processes and why they're so emissions intensive?
1: For sure. So the I mean the basic problem with the oil sands that makes extraction emissions intensive is. It's a heavy heavy hydrocarbon, so it's analogous to what California's heavy heavy oil industry would look like, that you need some other injection of energy to to extract the oil and to make it amenable to putting into a pipeline. So if you have the mining industry, which as you mentioned, uses a lot of diesel fuel, trucks and shovels run a lot of diesel fuel, and then there's an in- uh, emissions intensive process to separate the oil from the sand and then in some cases also an embedded sort of partial refining to create a lighter crude oil from the oil sands product. There's another class of operations that extract closer to what California does using steam injection uh, to extract the oil with wells, the oil sands product through drilling-based extraction. And there you're talking about just a large operation to create steam from water and a, a similar operation to uh, treat the water, remove the impurities, etc. Right. So one thing that I've not followed very closely,
0: but that I have some basic understanding of, is the sort of contentious relationship between the elected leaders in Alberta and the elected leaders at the national level in Canada about some of these emissions reduction goals. So can you talk a little bit about the political dynamics between uh, the sort of leadership at the federal level and in Alberta and like how it's evolved over time?
1: For sure. This is, I think, one of the most important traditions in Alberta is for our premiers to fight with Ottawa over resources. We've been doing it since the 1970s. Well, we've probably been doing it since Alberta was created as a province, but we've been doing it uh, aggressively since the 1970s and 80s. And, you know, the fundamental fight is you have A, a valuable resource in one region of the country, the federal government acting to distribute those revenues or distribute the value of the resource And you also have the question of who has legislative jurisdiction and the provinces have exclusive legislative jurisdiction over, you know, resources in the narrow sense, but the federal government has jurisdiction to regulate or to legislate in relation to a whole bunch of other things that affect resources, fisheries, navigable waters, migratory birds, and in some cases, greenhouse gas emissions. So there's a, a fight where both Jurisdictions have the ability at, to pass laws that affect the other's jurisdiction and you know that just creates a, an antagonistic an antagonistic relationship. Put money and politics in the middle of it and it's it's always going to be antagonistic.
0: Yeah. And um, have the sort of antagonistic dynamics ratcheted up with the increased climate
1: ambition or is it just kind of always been this way and this is just like kind of the latest iteration of it? I think it's it's ratcheted up not as much with the increased climate ambition as with the downturn that came about in 2015-16 in when oil prices dropped. And that was coincident with the election of a left of center government in Alberta, the election of the Trudeau government in Ottawa, and more push for action on climate change. And so you had globally but uh, in particular here in Alberta you had a big drop in investment you had people that were no longer experiencing the Alberta they were used to seeing and the obvious thing to blame was the change in government here and and in Ottawa and so i think it has it has ratcheted up and then like you've had in in the United States the ability for you know rage farming on social media to bring People who are angry together has has affected us as well, and so you've seen that uh, that element take effect. And again, probably since really twenty sixteen seventeen, it's been at a pretty high level. But now it's uh, it's back with a new premier here in Alberta to a pretty uh, pretty strong level right now again.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Rage farming is a new term for me, but of course I know exactly what it means as soon as you <laughs> okay. Um, so another question on, on, on politics here. You know, I was reading about a bill that is expected to be introduced in Ottawa on so-called just transition, uh, where you know, the federal government would be looking to find new economic opportunities for many of today's oil and gas workers and oil and gas communities. Um, what do we know at this point about the potential content of that legislation? And, you know, what are people saying about it in Alberta? Do you know anything about how it's likely to be
1: received? Oh, for sure. It's, uh, you know, the, uh, you, this term's been around, I think, since the since Superfund in, in the US probably. But in Canada, it's been not in as common usage, but we've, we've had it around in, in our environmental policies as well to say governments should take a role in making sure that those individuals who are displaced by environmental policy have alternative opportunities. And so the current federal government, not surprisingly, you know we're doing a lot of things to change our energy sector in a relatively short period of time. One of the pushes they were receiving from labor in particular was to put in place some kind of framework for, to shelter workers from, from these challenges. But the term just transition has been grabbed onto by the, the government here in Alberta and they framed it almost as more of an active thing. The federal government's trying to transition workers out of the energy sector. You know, we're going to pick them up and put them somewhere else. And, and so it really has been framed as, a clear and present threat to oil and gas workers in the province of Alberta, as opposed to how I would frame it, which is a bit of an insurance policy to say, if the energy transition rolls out as we might expect or fear, depending on where you are in in the industry, there's options. And so it's, it's really created a, an outsized fight for what I think the, the legislation was intended to be, which was really training education, um, you know, some government supports for for workers. Yeah, that's interesting.
0: There, there's actually a similar dynamic here in the United States where that term just transition is, it's it's kind of come to be reviled by everyone on both sides for all sorts of, of reasons. But certainly on, on the industry side, it's it's many of the same dynamics that you're talking about there.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think the, the other thing that for me, at least, is interesting about it is I feel like it It serves to give people permission to almost ignore the the real economic effects of some of these, whether it's policies or just broader energy transition that, you know, the government's not going to be able to recreate the world that exists in Alberta. They're not going to, if the government could create an oil boom wherever it wanted to, um, you know, there's lots of regions of the country that could use that kind of economic development right now. And, and that's beyond the reach of the, the government. And so I feel like there's a little bit of a, oh, don't worry, it will be fine aspect that goes with it, which, um, you know, doesn't play well here. And and I, and I don't think is is realistic either. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. So we've been talking
0: so far about the federal government and the provincial government. But of course, there are dozens of First Nations in Alberta and other indigenous communities across Alberta and other parts of Canada. Um you know, judging from what I know in the United States, I expect that there is a lot of variation across these communities about you know the way that people see the oil industry, the way that they perceive the energy transition and associated issues. Can you just talk a little bit about what you know about those indigenous communities that are most directly affected by the oil industry and what types of policies they might be advocating for and recognizing that it might be a mix and diverse across different communities?
1: Absolutely. I don't want to speak for any of the, the communities, but certainly diversity across and between communities and within communities about about how the oil and gas industry writ large or, or particular developments should be seen. We have a few cases right now where uh, Indigenous communities that have been very engaged in the oil and gas industry, both at a business level, at a development level and employment level, have now reached points where they say, nope, this is a bridge too far. And so, so I think it, it's it's been say a, a rising boil probably in in Canada, but we've seen uh, increased acrimony over uh, a gas pipeline recently that maybe echoes some of the Dakota Access fight that that took place in the United States, uh, and we're seeing a lot of concern now. I worked on some of the um, the filings for concern about oil sands remediation from First Nations in in the oil sands region. But the most interesting piece right now is is actually in British Columbia, not Alberta. There was a recent court decision in British Columbia that held that cumulative effects of development could infringe on First Nations treaty rights. And so now you have a situation where the government has essentially said, we are going to now co-manage the resource industry with the Treaty 8 First Nations. And that's the same treaty that encompasses the oil sands region. And so I think you're going to see a really big shift over the next five or 10 years in response to that particular decision in in BC. You're going to see more litigation in Alberta. You're going to see, you're going to have to see changes in the way the Alberta government deals with not just individual projects and individual development, but the whole, the broader effects of that scale of development and that that timeline of development. That's so interesting. Can you Put a little
0: bit more meat on the bones there. I'm really curious to hear how that would play out. Like if you could give us an example of a specific project or a specific region and how the sort of interaction between the indigenous communities might play out with either the provincial or the federal governments in
1: co-managing the resource development. Sure. So the the our nineteen eighty-two constitutional amendment, if you will, or our Constitution Act nineteen eighty-two enshrines in the Constitution the the rights of indigenous peoples. And some of those rights include traditional use of land, hunting, fishing, etc. And the interesting piece of this Yahya case in B.C., and and I'm giving you a very rough summary of a 2,000-paragraph court decision, but essentially that it's almost a a death-by-a-thousand-cut story, that while no individual project might have been sufficient to remove those rights or to essentially take away the, the traditional use right, the um, the overall impact of development writ large has been to essentially take away that right or to prevent those rights from being exercised. And so the government ended up putting a pause on a wide swath of both forestry and oil and gas development to say, okay, now we need to come up with an agreement with these First Nations, multiple First Nations in that area, all covered by the same treaty. And so the government essentially put a moratorium on development and now have come back with, just in the last couple of weeks, with the first agreement with one of the First First Nations in that area, the Blueberry River First Nation, to jointly manage development. So you essentially have now a co-governance model where development won't take place without uh, the approval of the, the First Nations, which is a, a big step uh, forward, I think, from what we've had in, in Canada before, which was a project-by-project project view. And so the, the connection to the oil sands is uh, in Western Canada, the, the treaties are all numbered and, and Treaty 8 covers, which which was the, the treaty in question in this BC case, is also what covers the oil sands region. So the Athabasca, Chippewan, First Nation, Fort Mackay, uh, regions in and around Fort McMurray would all be within that that treaty region. And so... And these are First Nations which have been long concerned with cumulative effects of oil sands development. So the question I think that everyone in Alberta is asking is what happens next in Alberta in terms of new projects, in terms of cleanup of existing projects, in terms of individual well drilling sites, pipelines, etc. cetera. How does this decision mirror into Alberta?
0: Yeah. That's so fascinating. And um, you know, you've mentioned remediation a couple of times, and I'd love to talk more about that now. So um, you know, here in the United States, this topic of orphaned oil and gas wells has gotten a lot of attention over the last couple of years. I've actually worked on it a little bit. But, you know, the broader issue of environmental remediation of oil and gas facilities is a, is a really big issue, and uh, especially in Alberta because of the way the oil sands are extracted. Um, can you talk a little bit about the environmental legacy of oil and gas development in Alberta, what the risks are, and what type of systems are currently in place or maybe not in place to ensure that they
1: get remediated appropriately? Sure. So I think we have two very different categories, very different regulatory regimes. One is the oil sands, and particularly the oil sands mines, where you have mine tailings, tailings ponds on the landscape. And the reclamation challenge there looks a lot like some of the, the legacy coal plants, etc., where you have um, it, legacy ponds that contain waste that we'll need to deal with over decades, centuries, et cetera. Right. And sorry to interrupt, but just can you, yeah. for people who don't know what mines tailings are, can you just briefly describe that? So when we extract the oil sands, you have a mixture of sand, oil, clay, heavy metals, et cetera, that you're extracting using water, chemicals, solvents, et cetera. And the waste product that comes off of that in in the near term is basically water, sand, clay, a little bit of oil, um, some heavy metals, etc., that are stored in lake-sized ponds in and around the oil sands, and over time, that the water is reused out of those ponds, but the what's left behind is is a tailings. They call it mature fine tailings in the oil sands, but it's essentially think of something that's the consistency of yogurt that is water, clay, sand, some oil products, and and those heavy metals that I mentioned held behind uh, multi-story dikes of sand and clay, et cetera, right on the edge of the Athabasca River. So you've got a huge environmental liability that probably is into the hundreds of billions of dollars to clean up over time. And the way that the, the government has managed this is to essentially allow the companies to use their operating assets as collateral against the future liability. So as long as the net present value of the mine, the value that it will generate in the future is larger than the environmental liabilities on the mine site, they haven't been asking for security deposits. So we have, you know, millions of dollars of liability in uh, security deposit against billions or hundreds of billions of actual liability. And so that creates a concern. I mentioned earlier that I'd worked on some uh, analysis for some of the First Nations who are, of course, concerned that in an energy transition, if the long term future of these oil sands mines is not there, all of a sudden you have a government that holds mines that are essentially uh, worthless or worth a lot less as collateral against a massive environmental liability in a northern community where there aren't a lot of other communities downstream from the oil sands. So they're concerned that the liabilities are going to be stranded on the landscape and that those First Nations in particular are going to bear most of the cost of that that stranded liability. Um, We have another parallel problem, which is the conventional wells, and these are more distributed throughout the province, and again, you have the same storyline where The regulator has essentially relied on the fact that companies are going to want to continue producing oil in the province to encourage them to undertake their legal requirements to clean up their wells. But they haven't done upfront bonding or security deposits or what have you. And so, not surprisingly, uh, you have two types of companies, those who have actively tried to avoid their liabilities and those who, through no explicit fault or intention... End up financially distressed and have no ability to reclaim or or remediate those liabilities. And so we have again, you know, substantial liabilities on the landscape, billions of dollars worth of liabilities that are unfunded on the landscape from the conventional sector. Mm -hmm. So interesting and such a big challenge. And as you're describing, you know,
0: really all of this conversation, there are so many analogies to the United States. and you know all of these issues about indigenous communities future of oil and gas development remediation political dynamics i can't help but think about you know the relationship between the federal government here in the us and states like wyoming or north dakota or texas or others who just sort of have a very different political orientation towards these questions so uh, i'm curious what like if anything uh that we in the us can learn from the experience in alberta to date either like best practices or worst practices or anything that we should be keeping in mind based on your experience so far?
1: I mean, I think there are some things we're definitely learning from U.S. jurisdictions in terms of bonding, et cetera, for oil and gas wells. So there's, there are some things that, that we're learning. I think the environment with respect to indigenous communities is substantially different because of our 1982 constitutional amendment where we uh, enshrined Um, First Nations rights in our constitution. So I think there's a little bit of a different dynamic there. I don't know the US landscape quite as well, but I think in Canada, it's easy to say, you know, the future of the resource industry in Canada relies on, um, if not permission, then uh, meaningful engagement with uh, First Nations communities. I don't know that that's as true in the long term in, in the United States i think the you know the 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 other thing though that i do think you're seeing in in the united states that we're learning about in canada right now is that challenge of conflicting promises and and you know i see it when when you see president biden and you know what does president biden actually want gas prices to be you know if he could pick high gas prices or low gas prices if he could pick high oil production or low oil production if he could pick you know substantial fossil fuel security or you know, I don't think anybody knows, and and it's it's almost more visible in the U.S. than it is even in Canada. That trying to live on both sides of that fence, and I think you know, as the the climate crisis becomes more serious, as action on climate change becomes more essential, then those inconsistencies just become more and more glaring over time. And and I think we're seeing that in Canada right now. That it's challenging to have. All of the things. And I think the, the U.S. is maybe a little bit behind that because they're not as dependent on the fossil fuel sector overall in their economy. But you still see it come out in that just even as simple as, you know, if, if President Biden could choose the gas price, what would he choose? Yeah, that's a
0: fascinating idea. And um, it's a really great point. Uh, Andrew Leach from the University of Alberta. This has been so fun. Uh, I have really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, and I'd love to talk more, but we're just about out of time. So I want to ask you the same question that we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something that's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack that you've read or watched or heard that you think is really great uh, that you think our listeners might enjoy.
1: For sure. So, so I told you I was going to cheat a little bit on this one and, and I will because, uh, and so I'm going to pitch um, Calgary author Chris Turner's books and I'm going to pitch two of them. Uh, one, I would say it's, it's been long in my stack is, is his book, The Patch, which is uh, what he claims is the people, pipelines and politics of the oil sand. So it's everything we've talked about today. It's, it's understanding Alberta, but understanding it at a more uh, person centric level. And then go to the top of the stack, Chris has a a new book called uh, How to Be a Climate Optimist. And I think this one's super interesting because it, you know, combines this this theme of how do you avoid that doom and gloom? The world's going to end tomorrow while still carrying on a meaningful push towards solving the environmental crises, climate change among them that, that we face. So I'm only part way through it. I'll admit that I'm not all the way through. So it's it's a live stack item, but I definitely recommend uh, those two books of Chris Turner's to your listeners.
0: Yeah, those both sound great. And um, getting a dose of climate optimism while still recognizing the challenge is something that I think is so important, especially for young people. There's so much sort of angst and anxiety around that topic. Um, a little bit of level setting, I think, would be really important.
1: For sure. Chris has a great line in there about, you know, the, the, the list of seven reasons why the world's going to end by next Thursday and, and how, you know, that's, that's basically the climate news that we're bombarded with all the time. And, and how do you cut through it? And, uh, has a little, is a really neat way of combining people and, and their individual personalities with the overall story, sort of a little bit Michael Lewis-esque in that, in that way. Yeah, well, that sounds great. Well, one more time, Andrew Leach from the University of
0: Alberta, thank you so much for coming on today and joining us on Resources Radio. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. That was great. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me. Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.